I'm Robin Kelsey, and I am Dean of Arts and Humanities here at Harvard. And I'm Michael Pollan, and I'm a writer and a, a professor of practice at Harvard, where I teach writing. Michael, you have uh, a wonderful new book, which I read this week um, to great pleasure. And it is a very interesting combination of a kind of journalistic history, but also uh, a personal story. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about how the book came to be what it is. Sure. Yeah, it's a bit of a departure for me. I mean, most people know me, I think, for books about food and agriculture. Although I think my larger subject has always been nature and our and the way we engage with it, uh, you know, actively, and the way nature engages with us. And um, so I I started hearing about uh, this so-called renaissance in research uh, into psychedelics, uh, which is that a class of drugs that includes uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms. LSD, DMT, mescaline, and a couple others. Um, and that uh, researchers at very reputable institutions like uh, NYU and Hopkins and UCLA had been testing them on people to see if they could help alleviate various forms of mental distress or illness. And I heard specifically and first about a study uh, giving psilocybin the active ingredient in the mushrooms, to uh, cancer patients who were struggling with anxiety and depression and fear about their mortality uh, or about recurrence. And this struck me as the strangest idea. I couldn't imagine wanting to have a ego-dissolving uh, experience when I was facing such a uh, profound uh, cliff. And, um, and But I, 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 I decided it'd be interesting to write about. So I did a long article for the the New Yorker called The Trip Treatment, um, where I interviewed a, a large number of people who'd had these experiences, cancer patients. And I was so uh, blown away by their stories and how a single uh, experience on a, you know, and these are guided psilocybin experiences. I mean, if you have a picture in your head of, you know, taking a bunch of mushrooms and going to a concert or going to the beach, this is a very different thing. This is uh, people in a therapeutic setting, laying down on a couch, uh, putting on eye shades and earphones and listening to this carefully curated playlist, all of which is designed to, to encourage a very internal journey. Um, that after one such experience, um, many of them had lost their fear of death entirely, had had glimpses of an afterlife, uh, and had, you know, really kind of bizarre but interesting mystical experiences, and had kind of redefined their sense of self, I think, to make it uh, much broader and to take in their community, nature, the universe, that I think made it easier to die. Um, and, uh, you know, Bertrand Russell talked about that. He was once asked, about how, you know, how, how might we die better than we do? And he, he really said, it's really a question of how you define yourself. How narrow or broad is that definition? And I think the psychedelics seem to change that uh, definition and, and, and broaden one's sense of self. So after having written that article, you know, there are two kinds of articles you write as a journalist. The, the one kind, you exhaust the topic and you're so sick of it when you finish and you're happy to move on to the next topic. And the other is, wow, I've just scratched the surface. This is a really rich topic. There's a lot to be learned here, not just about dying, but um, about the mind and the brain uh, and these these mushrooms, you know, what's in it for the mushrooms? Uh, that's always a, a, an interest of mine, as you know. Uh, so that kind of, I decided, well, 
you know, it's a good time for to write something new and, and change topics. And that I see as the great privilege of journalism as opposed to being in academia that, you know, we get paid as adults to master entire new subjects. Uh, and here was my chance. That's that's fantastic. So I, I have to ask you the generational question. I mean, you, you said that this is a renaissance. And most of us, when we think of psychedelics, you know, we think back to the 60s. We think back to Timothy Leary. And I'm struck by the fact that you entered this inquiry with these studies um, being done with uh, many people who were in the later stages of life. And I, I wondered about this being a story of the of the baby boom generation, right? Mm -hmm. Who who did did these psychedelics when they were young, and now some of them are are I'm coming back to it. Are coming back to it. Yeah, there's some truth to that, although many of the people in the trials had never used psychedelics. They were hallucinogen naive, as the researchers call them. Um, so even though they were boomers, they had, for one reason or another, uh, you know, the, the experience wasn't quite as widespread as smoking marijuana or right. something like that. And in my own case, even though I'm a baby boomer, I, I came a little late to the party, the 60s party. I mean, I was 12 in 1967. That was the summer of love and 14 for Woodstock. So... I was kind of a bystander uh, to a lot of that. And by the time the idea of using psychedelics swam into my conscious awareness, I, uh, uh, there was so much uh, negative information about it. You know, there were stories about how it would scramble your chromosomes or make you jump out of a building or stare at the sun until you go blind. I mean, the, you know, the, there, there, were, we, there was a full-scale moral panic right. uh, about LSD in particular before I... Um, before I even considered it. So I was frankly too afraid to go near them and, um, and did not have the obligatory boomers college experience uh, on LSD. I, it just never happened. I was, uh, I was in the same boat. I'm a little younger than you. So yes, you are. I, I, but I was, uh, I was six years old in the summer of love. So for, okay. me, for me as well, there was a sense of belatedness. I don't know if you experienced that. Yes. but I, I definitely but, had that. Yeah. I was very curious about them, and, and I would read everything I could about them. But I just, I also didn't, I think I didn't feel sturdy enough as an adolescent to, to go near something that I, I sensed would, could be so destabilizing. But in terms of people older uh, rediscovering an interest in these drugs uh, or participating in these trials... Um, you know, there's a line in the book that I really believe that in some ways psychedelics are wasted on the young and that um, these drugs may have more value, and I'm speaking therapeutically here, to, pe to people at an age when they're kind of set in their ways and maybe even a little stuck and that, you know, as we get older, we, have, we develop all these sort of mental algorithms and shorthands for any experience that crops up and it's very, that's very adaptive and helps you get a lot done, but... It also kind of blinds you to novelty and wonder and, and uh, new experience. And um, I think we all fall into patterns of thought and behavior we wish we could break. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a full-scale addict or depressive or, uh, you know, a disabling, I mean, a, you know, a heavily anxious person to have some of those tendencies. Uh, and the addiction may only be to Twitter, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, it can be, it can be very destructive. Um, well, so there, there, there's that, I think, that, that at that age, when you're, when you're not just formed, but perhaps too formed, um, that's something that kind of shakes the snow globe, as one of the scientists put it to me, it suddenly becomes appealing. 
That's a remarkable part of the book where you talk about the um, effects of psychedelics on the brain and what and what researchers today are learning that that leads you, um, as I understand it, to these conclusions about the fact that psychedelics may be particularly useful for people who've become too set in their mental habits that we we take certain shortcuts in the mind that end up building up these grooves, as it were, and, and mm-hmm. that one thing psychedelics can do is to, to get us out of those grooves and sort of open up uh, our, our minds to, to experience again. Could you, could you say a bit more about, about that research and, and how sure, you came yeah. to those conclusions? That research is fascinating. Um, it really started with an effort to do brain imaging, uh, specifically fMRI, although other modalities have been used since, on the brains of people during the psychedelic experience. And the researchers expected to see this kind of explosion of activity be, that would somehow mirror all the fireworks people were experiencing, hallucinations, synesthesia, all these things. Um, but they were really surprised to find that one particular and very important brain network uh, called the default mode network was um, substantially downregulated, almost deactivated on, under the uh, influence of the drugs. And, um, and this led to, uh, you know, kind of exploration about, well, what could that be about? Now, the default mode network, uh, and by the way, one of the world's uh, most prominent experts on it, uh, Randy Buckner, is on the faculty at Harvard and was uh, very helpful to me in, in trying to understand the default mode network. It's kind of where your mind goes when it's not occupied by a task. It's where we go to mind wander or um, worry <laughs> Uh, and uh, and ruminate. Uh, it's it's a site of. Um, it's not just one structure. It's important to understand. It's 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 a combination of linked structures, tightly linked structures in the cortex, which is the evolutionarily most uh, recent part of the brain, and, the, and but it connects to deeper, older structures involved in memory and um, uh, and emotion. And it seems to be a, a communications hub in the brain. Many, many circuits pass through the default mode network and get kind of sorted out there and integrated. And it seems to be involved in a range of what are called metacognitive functions, uh, such as self-reflection, time travel, thinking about the future or the past, a theory of mind, uh, the ability to impute mental states to other, uh, other people or other beings. Um, and um, uh, it's... So it's, you know, it's kind of like the seat of the self uh, to the extent there is one. It's also involved in something called autobiographical memory, um, which is it's, it's where we integrate new information coming in with our abiding story of who we are, you know, which, of course, involves reference to the, to the past, our history, and the future, our objectives. And so we kind of knit that illusion uh, that we are a stable self over time. I mean, if the Buddhists are right, it's an illusion. If a lot of people are right, it's an illusion. Um, and that happens in this network. And so when you, when you downregulate it or, 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 or limit activity in it, as the drugs seem to do, you ex- uh, phenomenologically, you have this um, collapse of the sense of identity, of self. Uh, and that can be either a traumatic or ecstatic experience, depending on your preparation and your ability to surrender to it. Um, but what happens when the, the default mode network goes offline, um, other mapping technologies of the brain show that other brain networks start communicating with one another. And, and the traffic in the brain 
and there's a, a couple images in the book that show this that are, are quite dramatic. Um, the, the traffic in the brain gets, inst instead of being on these big super highways linking important networks through the default mode network, suddenly you have all these little roads uh, springing up that are linking, um, you know, let's say your sense of smell to your vision or your or sense of hearing, and, and suddenly you're you're um, uh, hearing flavors or, or tasting sounds. And, uh, and it may explain things like hallucination, where your emotion centers might be talking to your visual cortex. So you're seeing what you fear or what you desire. Um, so that, and that rewiring of the brain is, is uh, as some of the scientists describe it, a kind of reboot. Uh, it's sort of like rebooting your computer. And whatever kind of uh, bad pathways and glitches have been building up over time uh, get, you know, temporarily erased and, and new connections have a chance to form. We don't know how enduring those connections are, um, but any connection is really a learned thing. So the more you exercise it, the more you, re you think back and remember an experience or an insight you had on psychedelics, the more you strengthen that particular pathway. And, uh, and that can have again, when you're, you know, properly guided, uh, can have a therapeutic value. So learning about the default mode network was, for me, one of the biggest takeaways um, that, you know, yeah, I know that thing. Uh, I get it. And, uh, and I know how good it feels when it's um, deactivated to some extent, because it, it really does consume us with, uh, you know, either anticipatory um, thoughts or, or regrets and um, gets in the way of, uh, you know, the, uh, Dan Gilbert or somebody, I think it was Dan Gilbert wrote an interesting paper saying a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. When the default mode network is doing its thing, we're not always happy. Rumination is not a happy thing, um, that, even though some creativity comes out of it also. So um, that, that appears to be the, the strongest theory for what, you know, explains what people experience on, uh, on psychedelics. And it's interesting to note that there are other ways to turn off or limit your default mode network. Uh, one of them, of course, is meditation. And one of the really surprising findings was that um, the brains of people on psilocybin and the brains of, of experienced meditators look very similar. That's um, fascinating. Meditators, isn't that? I mean, yeah. So meditators are, are, have learned how to essentially tune down their default mode network without taking a drug. And, and that may be a lot of the value of that experience. So, so it, that would suggest that, um, that the mind on psychedelics is coming back to, in a sense, a kind of earlier state, like a beginner's mind. Um, is there is there some parallel to be drawn between the way that the minds of young children seem so open to different possibilities in the world and the minds yeah. of people on on psychedelics? Well, one of the more interesting interviews I did was with a, um, a developmental psychologist, well-known one named uh, Alison Gopnik, uh, who, who uh, has written several books on the mind of the child and does these fascinating experiments with young children. And she said something to me that actually was one of the uh, ideas that sort of made me realize I had to write this book. She said, well, you know, my understanding of the child's mind is they're essentially tripping all the time until they're five or, you know, really until they go to school. And I asked her what she meant by that. And she said, well, they take in information in a very different way than we do. 
Um, we have uh, what she calls spotlight consciousness. We have this amazing and very adaptive ability to focus on one thing at a time and block out many other things. Uh, young children have what she calls lantern consciousness. So they're t they're t their light is going all around them. They're taking in things from the peripheries. And, they're, um, and the, other the other big difference is that most of our perception is actually prediction, right? We don't actually take in that much information. Our brains are cleverly wired to take in the minimum amount of information, like a rectangle that's about six foot six high with a little thing to the right is a door. You don't really have to even take in the door. Just get a little information and your mind will say it has a prior door. Right. And that saves us a lot of energy um, and time. Kids don't have those priors yet. So when they're searching to understand what that visual image is, they, they'll extend, they'll do a much more uh, wide search in the field of possibilities. And that search often is, leads to incredible uh, creativity. And, um, and, you know, a lot of the great insights of art and science are people who did what are sometimes called high temperature searches. They're, 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 um, they're disabling their priors in some sense so they can let in new information. Um, so anyway, yeah, there is this interesting sense. And she's done these cool experiments with kids where she'll set up a little machine uh, that she calls a blicket detector. And if you, put, you have, if you put blocks on top of it in just the right way or a block on top of it in just the right way, it lights up and music comes out. And, and adults and kids can learn pretty quickly what that is. But if you change the rules of the game and, and make it so, say, now you've got to put two blocks on it to make anything happen, the kids will figure it out before the adults because they're not locked into that pattern. It's all about one block and how you put it down. Um, so kids are, you know, kids are very good at certain learning that adults are not. And of course, we know the example of languages, that how quickly they can learn languages. And that may owe to this similar quality. So, yeah, so psychedelics, I think one of the ways to understand them or one of the things they help us understand is, is the mind of the child. And, and Allison uh, has since gotten very interested in this area of research and is collaborating with one of the, uh, one of the researchers in, um, in, at Imperial College in London who, uh, you know, did this work on the default mode network and uh, psychedelics. So, you know, one of the, and I think that's, I mean, you bring up a very important point about the book. It's, it's, it's not about psychedelics in one sense. It's really about the mind and what this very strange tool might tell us about the mind. Um, and that, I was inspired. Yeah, go, yeah ahead. go ahead. I was inspired and also kind of uh, very skeptical of a quote I read by um, one of the early psychedelic psychiatrists. This is back in the 60s, named Stanislav Grof. He was a, uh, a Czech emigre who did a lot of uh, work uh, using LSD in his really psychoanalysis practice, and um, and he concluded after having dosed, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people that um, psychedelics would be for the study of the mind what the telescope was for astronomy or the microscope for biology. Now this is an outrageous claim, uh, right? Right. Uh, in one level, but. But I kind of wanted to test it, and um, and I concluded that you know maybe it's not so outrageous after all that these you know when you disturb a system and psychedelics are great consciousness, you force that system to to yield some of its secrets, and uh, and I think that's happening. So, Michael, this book takes you into very controversial territory, 
And one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is that you come into this subject to a certain degree as a skeptic. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's uh, a skepticism about some claims on behalf of the knowledge that comes with the sorts of experiences that some people uh, have while under the influence of psychedelics. Could you say more about um, that skepticism and how your own attitude evolved over the course of writing the book? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was very skeptical and and I had to overcome all sorts of all forms of reluctance. Uh, Everything from like I was afraid to take these drugs and I wasn't experienced to God, I can't stand the new age music that these guides put on. (laughs) And um, and and the language they use is just so not my thing. And and they all spoke as kind of, you know, spiritual people. And I've never regarded myself. I, I've always thought of myself as kind of spiritually underdeveloped. And uh, and also, I am a kind of hardcore materialist. I mean, f- philosophically, I, you know, I really believe that everything can be explained by the laws of nature, and there are no exceptions. And um, uh, and here was a, a, a community of people, many of whom, including the scientists, by the way, had come to doubt that material understanding of things, that that they were seriously entertaining the idea that consciousness might exist outside our minds and isn't isn't necessarily the product of brains. Um, now, as I've since found out, there are physicists who believe this and, and philosophers who, you know, question that. In fact, we don't know that brains produce consciousness. We have no idea. I mean, one of the one of the amazing uh, takeaways for me was. Wow, consciousness. We don't know anything about it. There's a lot of talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, right. And and you know, people there's a lot of hand waving and people will talk about it's an emergent property of a complex system, but emergent property very often is a euphemism for magic, as right. far as I can tell. And um so but but people had come through studying this or or having taken the drugs with this kind of um Henri Bergsonian view that consciousness is a field that's out in the universe, and we are like radio receivers that tune it in. Um, and uh, so all of that I found a lot very hard to take. And then the experience of of the cancer patients who had you know had glimpses of the afterlife. Um, you know I'm not a I'm not sold on the afterlife. Right. And, right. Um, but what. You know, so but I didn't entirely drink the Kool Aid. However, I did find my my view of things rocked, um, and that the possibility there may be other explanations of consciousness no longer seem so, like something you should reject out of hand. Uh, that we should, you know, dwell in that mystery and be open to more possibilities, um, and that. Um, the kind of you know that that everyday normal consciousness is not the whole story. I mean, of course, William James said this, you know, 110 years ago, 120 years ago, that you know, right next to your everyday normal consciousness, which you think is is it and is an accurate transcription of the world, are other forms of consciousness bringing you a very different story. And um, I, I read an interesting interview with uh, the theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli the other day in The Guardian, and he, um, he, was ta- he wrote seven brief lessons on physics, and he has a new book out, I think, on time. And uh, he said it was an LSD trip when he was 15 that turned him on to theoretical physics, which he had found completely implausible, you know, the idea that 
time might not have a, a, a there might not be a past, present, and future. It may be a continuum, or that space is curved, or that uh, particles don't exist until they're observed. I mean, these are crazy ideas, right? In terms of normal consciousness, absolutely. Um, but that, but the experience opened him up to the possibility that the world as it presents itself to our senses may not be the only one. And, and he then dedicated himself to the study of theoretical physics. I think it's really curious that one mind might interpret that experience in terms of science, and another mind could interpret that experience in terms of religion or mysticism. Um, it's the same phenomenon with a different vocabulary, I think. Well, that brings up something that seems crucial in your book, which is the relationship between experience and language. And that in mm. some sense, I, I felt in the course of your book, there's a kind of mutual defenselessness uh, between the two. <laughs> that is, there's sort of um, no way for experiences to contend with uh, a certain language that won't make room for them. And at the same time, uh, there's at moments in which language seems defeated in its attempts to map um, experience. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, James, William James said that one of the hallmarks of the mystical experience, which is a shorthand for what people feel when they have a, a big uh, uh, psychedelic experience involving the dissolution of one's ego or sense of self, he says they're ineffable. Um, and, uh, you know, he, that you feel like this defies language. We have reached the limits of language. And yet you find people kind of compulsively effing the ineffable <laughs> and just and doing their best to, um, to put words to it. And I did too. I mean, it, it becomes a challenge. But there were these moments I reached. Uh, I describe one experience of, of uh, utter ego dissolution where I beheld myself spread over the landscape as paint or butter. And yet I beheld. So who's that I? And how could myself be out here and in here? It's almost as if I needed a new um, first-person pronoun to, to explain this, this new divide in my consciousness. Um, so you do run right up against the limits of language. And, but as a literary matter, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, and as, you know, to a writer, that's, that's a challenge you want to go for. And I actually thought writing about, you know, writing the parts of the book that describe my own experiences, um, which I approached with a lot of worry and trepidation that I knew this chapter was coming and I was going to have to do this. And, you know, I'd read lots of trip reports online and I've heard people tell me their dreams and, you know, nearly fallen asleep. Um, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get this across? And in the, in the event, it actually turned out to be great fun as a writer. I mean, I, I had a really good time doing it. You know, I'm not a fiction writer, but this put me in a, in a fictional realm, and, and that was incredibly liberating. You know, there's no facts to check in the trip. And, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, but, but part of it was, okay, how can I be in this experience and outside it at the same time? I think that's really the key. I mean, I actually teach my, my students who are writing memoirs that memoirs are really boring unless you're uh, layering perspectives and that you have to recreate your child consciousness, but also through the eyes of your adult consciousness. And it's in that space that they get really interesting. And the same is true with, I think, describing a trip. You have to be both in it enough to evoke the wonder of it and strangeness and terror. Um, but yet you also need to stand a little outside because you're talking to straight people and, <laughs> and you want to reach them. Right. And so, 
you see, I kind of go back and forth between like I'm in it and standing back and parenthetically and saying, I know how crazy this sounds. <laughs> um, but it was, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, as a literary matter, it's, it's a fascinating uh, frontier to, to work. Um, did, and, did you uh, know- and not an easy one. Right. I yeah. can imagine. Did you know when you started in on this project that you were going to engage in your own experimentation with psychedelics? No. Uh, when I did the New Yorker piece, which is a pretty straight piece of science writing, um, I had had no experiences and had and wasn't really, uh, you know, planning to. But when I decided, uh, with the help of my editor and my wife, uh, to do a book on this, uh, I realized that would have to be part of it. Um, and the reason for that is that that's the way I work. I mean, when I wrote about the cattle industry, I bought a steer. Right. When I wrote about architecture, I built a house. And when I wrote about baking, I apprenticed myself to a great baker. So, I, you know, I like, I learned a lot about writing from uh, a Harvard alum, by the way, named George Plimpton. Uh, right. And he, in the 60s uh, and 70s, kind of reinvented first sports writing by getting on the field. Uh, he was a little tired of the easy cynicism of the sports writer in the press box, chomping a cigar and who's seen everything. And he thought, you know, they're not evoking this, what this is really like, what it's like to be on the field. And he persuaded the Detroit Lions for a book called Paper Lion to let him um, uh, participate in a scrimmage and train as a quarterback. And he did it. And he played in a game. And uh, I mean, now he'd get killed. But in those <laughs> days, the guys weren't quite as big. And um, but it gave him this incredible uh, literary uh, resource, which was the wonder you can only evoke the first time you've done something. I mean, because the players don't even understand how amazing what they do is. And the, the spectators obviously don't. And it's that doing something for the first time is a is just a wonderful literary resource. And um and so I wanted to have that here. And, and I think my readers expect me to practice, you know, what we call in journalism, immersion journalism. Right. So, so there was a sense of obligation. There was a sense of curiosity. But there was also a, a sense of personal quest that, uh, you know, at some point, having heard what all these people were saying and telling me about their experiences, I did. I wanted to learn what I could about myself, about my mind, not just the mind. One of the things that that comes home in the book is the importance of setting and expectations for these experiences. And, and mm. you sought out particular guides for your uh, experience. And that's part of the, the therapeutic side of this or, or the, the spiritual side of it is not just about the drug itself, but it's about the context in which the drug is ingested. Um, yeah, that's a, it's a really important point. And actually, that was, the I think, the one important contribution of, well, I don't want to, there may be others, but of Timothy Leary. He really kind of theorized what he called set and setting, set being your mindset, your internal environment, and setting being your physical environment, your outward environment. And that the drugs are, they're very strange, and they don't really have too many properties of themselves. That What they are is um, uh, one, uh, uh, Groff actually called them, you know, unspecific mental amplifiers. Um, and they do something to your mind without question, but what they do is very much a construct 
of your um, your expectations, which is very important. Your uh, your inner life, your um, your subconscious or unconscious, uh, and the environment in which this happens. And so every trip is very different. And they don't have a kind of, um, they're not foreordained by the chemical in any way. And so the therapeutic experience, uh, the, the way that the researchers talk about it is like, we're not, we're not prescribing a drug here. We're occasioning an experience. And if that experience is sufficiently powerful uh, and involves ego dissolution, say, or, or a mystical experience, that is what the therapeutic agent is. It's not the drug itself. So it's a very unusual kind of um, approach to psychopharmacology. Um, it really is psychedelic-assisted therapy, psychotherapy, rather than just here's this drug that you take and you'll, you'll have the experience. And, and what's curious is that Leary, um, you know, who, who made so many mistakes and, and, and did things that led to the you know, the, the, the collapse of the research project, I think, um, or contributed to that, the moral panic that, that led to that uh, 30-year hiatus in research. He understood set and setting, yet he disregarded it in some sense. He, he, he basically gave up on the idea of a guide, that there be someone, you know, who would, would help you through the experience and be with you and was sort of an elder who knew the territory and could guide you. Um, and it was just like, yeah, everybody should take this now under any circumstance you want. And um, I, think that was, I think that was kind of his signal era from uh, uh, the point of view of, you know, whether you can help people with these drugs or not. And, and the other era was him deciding, losing interest in treating the individual and deciding, no, no, these, these drugs are so amazing, we have to treat the whole civilization. And that's, a, that's an occupational risk of everybody who works with these drugs. They, sooner or later, they think, this could really help the, the whole culture. And I think that's a dangerous idea. I don't think we have any good um, models for um, uh, prescriptions, culture-wide prescriptions. That's interesting. I, I take it that with the therapeutic use of uh, psychedelics that Part of the process is using the experience as a reference point afterwards. So it's not just about the experience, but if, if the mind is opened up in these ways and that uh, a certain state of being is obtained, which has some value for moving yes. past the, the, uh, the patterns that the brain has fallen into, that, that this becomes then a reference point that one can attempt to access or reconstruct even without the, the drug. Yes. Is, is that the case? Exactly right. Yeah. Um, be, you know, when people have an insight on the experience or have a powerful image, one of the things that's really notable is how sticky it is. It's, it's not like dreams where you feel that undertow, you know, co sort of pulling the imagery or the meaning of your dreams away from you very quickly after you wake up, unless you write them down or tell somebody. Um, here, there, there is this uh, incredible uh, concreteness to whatever is experienced. And people remember their psychedelic experiences 30, 40 years later. Um, and James, again, who, you know, got there first in a lot of these issues, uh, said that the, uh, that the mystical experience had um, what he called a noetic quality, uh, that whatever you saw or understood um, takes on this incredible weight and conviction, and it becomes like more like revealed truth than an opinion. 
you know, it becomes objective. And that may have to do with the fact that subjectivity is, is compromised during the experience. I don't know. There's some very interesting psychological mechanism that uh, some of the researchers refer to it as the duh moments people have. Like there's some insight that might be incredibly banal that somebody could have told you like, Smoking is, uh, you know, is is stupid. Okay, that, that's a classic example. People people are trying to quit smoking using these drugs. They'll come out of it with this sense that there's so many wonders in the world and so much to do and so much to appreciate that shortening your life with cigarettes is really foolish. I mean, you know, I could have told them that. Anybody could tell them that. But for some reason, it's now this article of faith. And uh, and it and it's rooted deeply enough in their psyches that they can act on it, uh, even though they probably had that thought a million times as smokers and got over it every time they had a craving. So that's a very interesting, peculiar thing that um, people do. Uh, there was a there was a woman who uh, was deathly afraid of a recurrence of her ovarian cancer. It was just debilitating her. She was a in her sixties. She's a figure skating instructor in Manhattan. And she did this experience at NYU. And she went into her body imaginatively and saw this, um, this black mass under her rib cage. So it was under her rib cage. So she knew it wasn't her cancer, but she realized it was her fear. And she screamed at it. She said, get the fuck out of my body. And it vanished uh, in, in her experience. And it, it taught her this very interesting lesson, which was that, as she put it to me, I can't control the cancer, but I can control my fear, my fear of the cancer. And that idea, which in a way is kind of obvious, but also profound, um, stuck with her. And um, I wrote about her in the New Yorker piece, and I said that, you know, after her, her journey, her, her fear was substantially diminished. And, and they called her, to, and which was kind of a weaselly journalistic way of just kind of pleasing the fact checkers. But the fact checkers then called her and said, is this, is this accurate? Uh, and she said, no, it's completely wrong. My fear was extinguished. Uh, I thought that was quite remarkable. That's extraordinary. Uh, which, which raises another issue which fascinates me, which is that um, when many of us come to the issue of, of psychedelics, we, we come to it through a filter of all the um, controversy over the use of drugs, the war on drugs, the, the um, skepticism about uh, anything that seems to be um, beyond uh, ordinary um, experience. It's very, it's, it's very morally uh, laden yeah. uh, territory. And one of the things that really strikes me about your approach and the approach of current research through through the therapeutic is that it, it brings home something that you, you quote William James as saying in your book, which is that you should judge mysticism by its fruits, Fruit, which, yeah. which I thought is quite an extraordinary uh, uh, phrase. And so, so it feels like there's a potential here to, to deflect some of this controversy and really talk about what are these experiences doing for certain people, not just people who are unwell, in some manner or other, yeah. but even people who may be well, but who um, find themselves stuck in certain uh, habits of mind, as as um, I assume most anyone uh, your age or mind uh, finds uh, mm -hmm. her or himself, um, that 
that we can think about we can think about the psychedelics in this in this other um, potentially more um, constructive and less charged uh, way. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You hit on something. You know, I was trying to find a way to talk about it that kind of bracketed all the uh, really, I think, moral confusion that surrounds drugs in this country and, and certainly surrounds psychedelics. Our impression of psychedelics, you know, for better and worse, and mostly worse, was strongly shaped by the this experience in the 60s, in, in which Harvard, you know, played a very important role with uh, Timothy Leary and the Harvard Psilocybin Project, which, you know, only lasted less than three years, from 1960 to 1963. But the scandal, partly because it happened at Harvard, became such a big story and it contributed to um, this backlash uh, against psychedelics and, and certainly this moralizing of them. But there were a lot of other things going on at that point having to do with um, uh, youth culture in general, which I think, uh, you know, the fact that there was this really historically anomalous split between two generations, I mean, I, more violent, I think, than we've seen, uh, where the young had developed their own culture entirely, uh, right. you know, down to, you know, from the modes of dress and, and kinds of food they ate to um, sexual mores, morality, um, drug use. I mean, so many things. Um, and and LSD and psilocybin contributed to that, I think, because they basically, uh, and the way I interpret it in the book is they basically gave the young uh, a rite of passage the elders had never had. And that'll never happen again, right? That's about this one moment in time. But in general, rites of passage are organized by the elders to bring adolescents into the adult community, you know, right. whether it's a, a bar mitzvah or a vision quest. Um, and they set the rules of the game, and they know where you're going to end up before you get there. And here you had the young having this powerful rite of passage and ending up in a country of the mind the adults found completely strange and, and scary. And that led a lot to the backlash and the, um, uh, and the incredible opprobrium that surrounded psychedelics. So I try to just kind of like put that aside. Let's, let's look at them on their own terms. I mean, what drug, you know, the fact that some drugs are legal and some are illegal, those distinctions fall apart really quickly. I mean, why is um, uh, marijuana worse than alcohol in the eyes of the law? Um, is it toxicity? Is it addictive potential? I mean, the rationality just crumbles as soon as you, you push on it just a little bit. We're all taking psychoactive drugs in this culture, um, whether it's, you know, caffeine or uh, tobacco. Um, you know, for some reason, we are a species that likes to alter consciousness, and uh, it must serve us in some ways, and I speculate on some of the ways it may serve us. Um, but we tie it up with the fact that every culture has, you know, uh, acceptable drugs and taboo drugs, and, they, and those taboos serve lots of social functions, including um, scapegoating of certain populations that use those drugs. Um, I mean, think back to, you know, when the penalties for crack cocaine were substantially different than the penalties for cocaine. That was a function of what class and race were using which drug. Um, so I don't have a lot of patience for that conversation. I've written about it before. And, um, and so I think it's sort of time to kind of pretend it isn't there and see if we can't have another kind of conversation and hope that having that other conversation you know, dealing with it as if these drugs were legal 
uh, will will um, move things along. Um, I you know I don't necessarily support legalization of psychedelics straight up. I think that it's one of the things we've learned uh, from the study of our own culture and other cultures who've used them for thousands of years is that they're very powerful and need to be uh, their use needs to be very carefully regulated. There needs to be a kind of cultural container, whether it's a, a ritual or religious ceremony or a medical setting. Um, but that the um, you know merely loosing these chemicals upon the culture uh, can have some deleterious effects. So you know I think our, one of our cultural projects is is figuring out what that container is right now. I mean you know we're not we don't live in a, a you know a traditional culture of sh- shamanism. Uh, so we we've got to come up with our own way to do it. So one of the things that um, strikes me about about this um, project is that in this very materialist um, uh, intellectual culture in which we find ourselves, uh, any experience of a consciousness that is um, unusual or or altered in some way can become a a kind of embarrassment, a a, a guilty Mm -hmm. secret, something that people people don't talk too much uh, about. Have you opened up some conversations in the course of writing this book with people about their own experiences? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm just starting this, uh, uh, you know, book tour, uh, but I've done maybe 10 interviews so far. And uh, without exception, maybe there's one exception, but but basically without exception, there is not a, a journalist who's interviewed me who hasn't at some point said, can I turn off the tape recorder and tell you a story? And that story is very often of a very powerful psychedelic experience they had. And it could have been 20, 30, 40 years ago. But it's vivid to them, and they've been keeping it in this little box labeled weird drug experience that they don't feel comfortable talking about, either because there were kids around or there's a stigma attached, as you say, to talking about spiritual matters. Or, um, you know, their professional standing made it dangerous for them to, to, to mention it. You know, they wanted to run for president maybe someday. Um, but I seem to have sort of licensed that conversation for some people, which I think is very interesting because I'm, I'm talking pretty openly about my own experiences. And some of their stories are amazing. That's great. That's a great place to end, Michael. Thank you so much. It's an amazing book. I think it's going to be a very important book. And on top of all that, it is a great read. So thanks so much. Thank you so much, Robin. It was a pleasure talking to you about it. Likewise. Take care.